Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing Under the Banner of Heaven. Under the Banner of Heaven, a story of violent faith, was written by John Krakauer and published in 2003. And the television limited series was created and written by Dustin Lance Black and came out in 2022. And this is going to be a very, very detailed and interesting episode to discuss. <laughs> I'm like excited, but also terrified. So buckle up. This might be <laughs> one of our hardest episodes to talk about because, yeah. first of all, it's a series, which there's so much more to discuss yep. in terms of the adaptation. Then it's a true story mm-hmm. where the uh, book is filled with like a lot of detail and a lot of complicated backstory. Yeah. And then it's about religion. Yes. A very, <laughs> a very easy to discuss topic. This should be totally normal, right? This is just going to be <laughs> fine. Um, here's the thing. You know, this is a story about, at its core, you know, these violent murders that were done in the name of religion. Um, And so this book that was written by John Krakauer, who, of course, also wrote uh, Into the Wild and Into Thin Air, which we did an episode on Into the Wild, if you'd like to listen, you know, is very investigative, is delving into the history of Mormonism and then also the history of extremist Mormons, um, fundamentalist Mormons, as they're called, because this was sort of how these murders came about or were justified by the people who committed them. And then the show is kind of taking that backstory and then it creates its own narrative. Um, It creates the character played by Andrew Garfield, who is the detective. Yeah, so it kind of creates like a framework to kind of explore the the story and the mystery, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and but then also delving into the backstory because the character that Andrew Garfield plays, Jeb, is a Mormon mm-hmm. and is kind of having a crisis of faith due to the circumstances of this murder. Yeah, I just want to put like a trigger warning up here. You know, we're talking about a very violent murder. We are not going to get into extreme detail because no. that is not our not our thing. Um, if you want to read the extreme details of this case, you can do so online or you can read the book. You can watch the show. Um, but we're not going to talk about that here. But it is like pretty violent and um, horrific. And, you know, trigger warning for really intense religious discussions, because we're going to talk about that, too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I think it's worth mentioning that, like, you know, this book and the show is an exploration of Mormons specifically. Yeah. However, uh, John Krakauer at the very start of his book makes a point to say that, like, religious extremists in every religion exist yeah. and are capable of violence. And even though we're focusing on a specific religion, it is pretty applicable to every religion, right? Yeah. Or every type of extremist. So, mm-hmm. which I think as we discuss this story, we will be connecting it to other, you know, religions and personal experiences as well. Yeah. And, you know, personally, Ian and I are kind of people who grew up religiously and have definitely drifted away as we've become older. So our perspective is definitely one of like skeptics, you know what I mean? And is very uh, suspicious and often critical of religion. So, you know, we're not trying to offend anybody, but that's just our point of view. So yeah, let's just, let's just get into it, Ian. (laughs) Yeah. So interestingly enough, the show is framed as kind of this like mystery throughout, right? Like, who did it? What were the motives? Mm-hmm. All that kind of thing. 
The book, in its first chapter, basically just summarizes the entire thing. Yeah. Who did it, what happened, which is kind of like almost the exact opposite of what the show's going for, which is interesting. Yeah, I kind of like it in the book, though, because it's like, here's what happened. And, you know, we get the facts of the case that this uh, woman, uh, a young mother who was outside of Provo, was murdered along with her 15-month-old daughter. Yes, on July 24th in 1984. Yeah. And then the book is kind of like, here's who did it, here's what happened, here are the circumstances. And then it kind of goes back and parses out like what led to this moment and even towards the end of the book actually goes into the murder in more detail about how it actually happened um kind of beat by beat but it is interesting to start out the book in this way and just kind of telling us what happened in the show all we know is that brenda and her you know infant daughter erica were murdered their throats were slit And Jeb, who is played by Andrew Garfield in the show, is a detective in this, you know, Utah community who is investigating this crime. Yes, he's called to the crime scene. And you can just tell immediately by his reaction that, like, this type of thing is not something that he has ever encountered before. It's just an extremely brutal and violent murder. Mm -hmm. And I think it kind of already you can see it's shaken his idea of the type of community that he lives in. Yes. And that this kind of close-knit Mormon community, like, who could have done something this extreme? And everyone on the crime scene scene seems very rattled by it. Yeah, and what I like about the show is that it does not show the bodies of the victims. It does show a lot of blood, and chillingly, the, the creepiest detail, of course, are the bloody handprints on the door of the baby's room. Yes. It conveys so much to you. Mm -hmm. And I think the reactions of the police officers and Jeb, the detective, it really gives you everything that you need. We don't have to see the extent of how brutal this murder was. Yeah, it's not trying to over-sensationalize it Mm -hmm. or anything like that. Yeah. Let's talk about the investigators. Yes. There's Jeb Pyrie, played Mm -hmm. by Andrew Garfield, which... I think he's, like, so perfect in this role. He is. He's so clean cut. I almost believe that he's Mormon. Yes, I do, too. He (laughs) seems just like a giant Boy Scout. Yes. Uh, And so... Perfect casting. Yes, I I totally agree. Just (laughs) seeing his evolution from this very clean cut, uh, do-gooder kind of Mormon Mm -hmm. uh, and... Him beginning to question his faith, I think he's he's really well cast for that. Yeah, contrasting him is his partner, also detective, Bill, who is of the Native American uh, Paiute tribe that is native to uh, the Utah area. And he is from either Las Vegas or Reno and has moved yeah. here and kind of has more experience as a detective than Jeb. The two of them are definitely like an odd couple because Jeb is so devout, very Mormon, Um, Meanwhile, Bill is like eating his French fries, drinking his Diet Coke and coffee and smoking and like swearing. And he but the two of them do have kind of a respect for each other, which I like. Yeah, there's a brief clash in the first episode about uh, Jeb kind of like going off the book and how he's like approaching this murder case and Bill being like upset and annoyed about that, Mm -hmm. Um, showing that they do have their differences. But overall, you can tell, like you said, they have a respect for one another. Yeah. So awesome. I love his character. He's excellent. I just watched um, Hell or High Water, which he also plays a cop in (laughs) uh, and was great in that movie as well. Mm hmm. Early on, I really like the setup of this. Like, it's kind of dramatized in a great way. But when they're at the house investigating, 
a man covered in blood shows up. Yeah. And they immediately arrest him, obviously. Mm -hmm. And it's discovered that he is Alan, the husband of Brenda and Mm -hmm. the father of the child. Yes. Obviously, he is the number one suspect. It's always the husband. (laughs) Um, Except in this case, as we come to realize over the course of the show, and we're told right away in the book, Alan is not the one who committed these crimes. He came home to find his wife and daughter dead. But they do take him in for questioning, and he's basically held in custody for almost the duration of the show. Yeah. This is an interesting way that the story is told in the show, where Jeb is constantly interviewing Alan about, like, who could have done this? I need to know about your family. I need to know about what was going on with you and Brenda. Like, all of these things. And Alan is clearly very much um, questioning his own faith. Yeah. And seems to be distancing himself from the LDS, which is... The Mormon faith. Yeah. Or he's kind of like already been through that process, it feels like. Yeah. And in a weird way, I get like Hannibal Lecter vibes (laughs) from this situation, but like almost reversed, right? Yeah. Um, Where Jeb continuously visits and talks to Alan and Alan is this skeptic, like doesn't believe in the Mormon faith anymore, Mm -hmm. really, and is constantly... Like, obviously, their conversations revolve around Mormonism yeah. a lot. And Alan is kind of, like, testing Jeb a little bit. Yeah. Or bringing up issues or things that clearly are weighing on Jeb. Yeah. Bringing up contradictions, um, getting Jeb to question what he's always believed in. So, yeah, I think this is a good element to the story, having these two interact. And the, these were some of my favorite parts of the show. Yeah, I thought it was a really good way to introduce this idea of like you were saying contradictions within the religion Mm -hmm. and how people can justify that or how people are become uh, extreme yeah or confronted with those ideas Mm -hmm. and how they handle them yeah let's go into uh brenda and alan's backstory and meeting Mm -hmm. they met at brigham young university yeah correct even though alan wasn't attending at that time Mm mm-hmm Brenda's family is from Idaho, I believe, Mm -hmm. and she wanted to go to BYU. You know, she came from a Mormon family, but her family was pretty, like, her dad is a bishop, but it does seem like they have kind of, like, a very healthy, and this is what is portrayed in the show and in the book, uh, relationship between, you know, their everyday life and their religious life. Um, You know, Brenda is presented as this really beautiful and outgoing and smart woman who wants to get an education and she has goals. You know, her her dream is to become like a news anchor on TV. Yeah. You know, but she's still very connected to her faith. You know, it's very important to her. And the Lafferty's are kind of a famous family in Utah. Mm -hmm. Their name is very important. There's a lot of history there. And so when she meets Alan, this means something to her, right? This is a a devout and well-known Mormon family, clearly like a family that she would want to be connected to because her faith is important to her. Yeah. I really like how the show kind of presents this with a spectrum of people who are of the Mormon faith, right? Yeah. You have Brenda's family that to me feels the most liberal, the most modern, and probably like the healthiest balance of like lifestyle and Mm -hmm. religion. Then you have Jeb, uh, the detective, and his family, and, like, very devout. You can kind of see, like, some issues and, like, maybe, like, a little bit too conservative feeling. And then, obviously, you have the Lafferty family 
extremely religious mm-hmm. and only escalating further throughout the story. Yeah, and they get worse and worse, like you said. Yeah. Um, we have a really great scene in the show where Brenda and Alan are kind of dating and Brenda meets the Lafferty family. <laughs> this scene, <laughs> like, I had Get Out vibes. I know, it was like, so Get it's Out. It's so creepy. She's talking, everyone's just, like, very uncomfortable, like, yeah. constantly commenting about how pretty she is. You feel like there's a secret among them all yeah. that, like, she's not clued into, and I'm mm-hmm. just like, get out, get out, get out, get out. And the dad is super judgmental of Brenda. Yes. Like, you see this in glances and things that he says to her. Just him disapproving, I think, of her looks, Mm -hmm. like that she is pretty and also like takes time to make herself look prettier, you know, and she doesn't mind like putting on makeup and doing her hair, Uh, her education being a red flag. And then also the fact that she has career goals. Yeah, there's a great scene where they help a neighbor like de-stone his like farming field or something. Yeah. So all the men are doing that work while all the women are standing by the the lemonade table, it looks like. You and have to have a lemonade table. Yes, <laughs> obviously. The boys are thirsty. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, Brenda decides like, I don't want to do this. And she runs out and starts helping pull stones from the field and kind of like yeah. putting herself among the men mm-hmm. and just kind of showing how she is different than at least the other women in this group. Yeah. We meet um, Alan, some of Alan's brothers. So there are six brothers total and two daughters in this family. Uh, Ron is the oldest and he's married to Diana and they have some kids. They're presented in the show and in the book as kind of being a little bit separate from the rest of the Lafferty clan. Ron kind of doing his own thing that him and Diana might be a little more modern in comparison to the other Lafferty's. Yeah. He owns a, uh, successful construction company he's on like the city council Mm -hmm. he feels like the most relatable and kind of like cool brother yeah (laughs) uh and then you have dan the second oldest Mm -hmm. who feels the most crazy (laughs) yeah (laughs) just like right off the bat and maybe this is because he was in the Captain America or the Winter Soldier Falcon yeah. show, and he also had weird crazy vibes, vibes in that show as well. <laughs> um, but yeah, he just has like a very unsettling feel to him as mm-hmm. well. He's married to Matilda, who um, is actually from Scotland and was a convert from uh, one of Dan's missionary trips. Oh, I forgot about that bit of Yeah, because like an important part of a lot of um, Mormons when they are coming of age is they go on these mission trips Yeah, when they're younger, um, especially for the men, I think. I don't know if the women do it or not. Um, but they kind of go out and they spend a period of time evangelizing. And that's when you get the Mormon men that come to your door. Yes. <laughs> the Mormon boys. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So the two oldest brothers... And Alan, who was married to Brenda, mm-hmm. are the three brothers that exist in real life. Yes. The other brothers. <laughs> so I think the show um, gets more fictional with like how the other brothers are involved as suspects in the case. Yes. And they're the the details of their real lives that the show decided to give them different names Mm -hmm. than any of the actual real brothers, which I think is probably fair. Yeah. We have Robin, we have Sam and Josiah. Mm -hmm. There might be another one in there, but I don't know. It seemed like there was another guy that was around sometimes. So maybe I'm mistaken. I think that's it. (laughs) I think it was just so hard at the beginning to keep track of everyone. Yeah, yeah. And once Sam grows his beard out, he feels like a totally different person. A totally different Culkin. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Crazy Culkin. Yes. (laughs) Um, But in the book and in real life, 
Um, it goes like Ron, Dan, and then what were the other names? Tim, Mark, and Watson Jr. Watson and then, Jr. And then Alan. Yes, so. Alan is the youngest mm-hmm. among all of them. <laughs> and I think Alan's dynamic is interesting too because like he's the youngest and feels like the most impressionable. Yeah. And you see how as the older brothers begin to become more extreme, he's kind of pulled yes. between his wife and them, mm-hmm. which I think is a really interesting dynamic for him. For sure. Let's get into some of the interesting stuff that the book dives into, because the book really explores different areas, different uh, communities mm-hmm. that reflect uh, the fundamentalist Mormons and the polygamists. Yeah. And it kind of really just tries to paint a broad picture of what the Mormon extreme- extremism was like, both in modern day and like its past. Mm-hmm. We start off um, kind of with... John Krakauer going into different um, FLDS, which is fundamentalist LDS groups. Um, So the LDS church is the regular Mormon church. Yes. FLDS is the schism, the like extremist fundamentalist group that the Mormon church is not affiliated with in any way. No. And I think, too, that like even though a lot of groups consider themselves FLDS. They're not like affiliated yeah, with, with each, each other. other. Yeah, they're like all kind of different factions. They're all like, we are the one true religion. <laughs> yeah. And then the other one's like, no, we are. Yeah, they find like one little thing to disagree on and they're like, we're splitting well, up. you're all going to hell. Yeah. <laughs> we're like the 30 people on earth that are going to heaven. That's basically the deal here. Um, there's this Arizo- there's this area called the Arizona Strip and you know, the cities are kind of known as Colorado City or Hilldale, and the community is sometimes called Short Creek. But it's this kind of group that's been FLDS, that's been this polygamist hive, basically since the LDS church denounced polygamy in like the 1890s. Yeah, and I really love the geography is so interesting, right? Yeah. So the Arizona Strip is in like the very most northern northwestern part of Arizona. Yeah. And it's cut off from the rest of Arizona by the Grand Canyon, by this, like, physical obstacle, right? Yeah. So the state has a tough time, like, managing that area because it's so remote from everything else. Mm -hmm. And I think there's also some other physical attributes of the area that kind of separate it completely from other areas, but, like... It's very desolate. Yeah, it's mostly a sliver of Arizona that feels remote from every other part of Arizona. Yeah, and this community really has taken over and was... Like, in charge of... Like, they owned all the land that the people, like, lived on, right? Like, this church, this group, like, owned everything. And when Krakauer is writing the book, um, the leader of this group, the lead prophet or president, is Rulon Jeffs. And I was kind of looking this up randomly as I was reading it because, of course, this book was published in 2003. So a lot of stuff has happened since then. Yeah. Because in the book, Krakauer is like... Rulon Jess is like 96 and people think that he's going to live forever because he's like the true prophet. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I he's dead. I'm looking this up. <laughs> and it's funny because like in the book later on, they like Krakauer comes back and Rulon has died. Yeah. And uh, so his son, Warren Jeffs, takes over. And I started Googling and like Wikipedia-ing this. And uh, I don't know if this is surprising to anyone, but Warren Jeffs is in prison. Because Not surprised. In 2011, I believe, he was convicted of um, pedophilia and, like, rape because he had married 14-year-old girls and that he had also performed marriages of 
girls 14 years old and under to old men. Yeah. So, yeah, he's in prison. Um, What's interesting about this is that because he went to jail, the U.S. government kind of used that as an opportunity to take over the land Okay. That this community lived on and actually like ended up giving it back to the people that lived on it. Yeah, because it was such a fucked up system where someone, if they were excommunicated, they had no right to the property that they lived on. It was owned by the, the church, church and the community. Mm-hmm. And even their wives could be taken away. Yeah, and their children from yes. them. Yeah. So really so many of these people were victims of their the own their own system and society that they lived within if they were excommunicated for any reason. Yeah, and almost without fail in these like fundamentalist Mormon communities, there is pedophilia, there is sexual abuse, um, there is just rampant exploitation of young women and women, young women being married off to old men, you know? Yeah, because here's the thing, like if someone wants to like be in a like quote unquote marriage with more than one person, it's like I don't I don't have a problem with that. Like I don't yeah. care. Because you could argue like the government shouldn't be involved in like anyone's marriage, and I think that's like reasonable also. But with the polygamist groups in Mormonism, I mean, first of all, you have one man marrying like 14 women. Yeah. And it's like that's not a relationship. That's like owning property. Yes. And additionally, they keep marrying like young teenage girls. Yeah, which is illegal. Yeah, and I'm yeah. like, stop doing that. Yeah, <laughs> maybe stop doing that. Yeah, <laughs> maybe have as many wives as you want, and who gives a shit? I don't know, uh, but like, yeah. stop marrying children, children, and like their own stepdaughters, and they'll like swap them around, yeah. and like it's this really abusive, fucked up system. And obviously, so many of these girls have no, first of all, they have no experience outside of these communities to even understand what's happening to them. Yeah. And then they have no resources if they do want to leave, if they realize what's happening to them is mm-hmm. terrible. Yeah. And a lot of them are abused from a very young age. Yeah. Um, which is very sad. We also visit a community called Bountiful in Canada, which is also like an FLDS haven. Um, and Krakauer interviews a woman uh, named Debbie, Debbie, who kind of went through a specific kind of hell personally. And we hear all about her story growing up in this community, being abused sexually and physically by various men in her life, her brothers, her father, her husbands, and having that abuse visited on her children as well. And it's a really heartbreaking story. She eventually does leave um, the community there, but she talks about how she thought that she would be damned to hell if she left. And just how like tragic that is to be told that as an instrument of like, keeping you, you know, down and keeping you yeah. prisoner. Yeah. It's it's really harrowing to like read these like firsthand accounts mm-hmm. of these situations. Um and I and I appreciate John Krakauer kind of like giving this broad portrait of what these polygamous groups are by in, interviewing and talking about like specific stories, right? Yeah. I also want to mention and this is something Ian and I talked about because when you talk about polygamy There are a bunch of logistical issues that come up immediately. Yes. Yeah. Please. Can we talk about this? Because I wanted the book to answer this question. Yeah. And it didn't, which is if you have one man marrying three plus women. Yeah. Isn't your community just like filled with single men who are told by their religion that they need to marry multiple women to like get into heaven. Yeah. And like, what do they do about that? You or, run like, out of women is yes. what happens. Yeah. So I looked into this. Oh, oh, great, great. Um, But I feel like I could look into it more. But yeah. I just read like a kind of a snippet in a different article. I was reading about something else about how 
a lot of young men are actually driven out of their community. Which makes sense. And they're kind of labeled as like, they did something wrong and they're excommunicated in order to like, just drive out the competition kind yeah. of. And when you think about it, it it's very, um, it feels very like animalistic. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like a, a an animal like driving away like his competition so he can have sex with all the females. And reproduce more. Yeah. yeah. And then another problem that comes up, because I thought about this and I was like, wait, what do, doesn't that like start to limit the genetic pool? Like, yes. don't you start to get inbreeding? And yes, you do. But it has to happen over many generations, right? Because yeah. inbreeding... If it happens just like occasionally, it really is not that much of a problem. But when it just consistently happens over generation after generation, and in the terms of like the Short Crick Arizona Strip community, you know, they've been there for over 100 years. Yeah. So now, like now, we're Mm -hmm. starting to see a lot of evidence of um, genetic Oh, interesting. Genetic problems. So I was reading some articles actually about these super rare genetic disorders that like tons of the kids have in this wow. community. Like a disease that was like one in 200 million, it happens to, there's like 50 cases in this community. Wow. Um, and like severe mental, physical, developmental di- disabilities, children that die very early on in mm-hmm. life. They talked about this baby cemetery where it's oh, just Jesus filled. Jesus Christ. With these children who died because of these genetic conditions. And just just being honest about, like, this is what happens when everyone is related and they keep marrying into each other. Well, and if you think about it, too, these communities are having, like, 14, 15-year-old girls have children, right? So that really ramps up the generational factor, too, right? Because you're having, like... A new generation every 15 years instead mm-hmm. of like it's speeding it up 20, 25 or 30 years. Right. So yeah. it kind of escalates it to, I imagine, which and very young mothers also have more risk of miscarriage and, um, you know, uh, problems with um, children being bored and infant mortality because it's really hard on young mothers. Yeah. To have uh, babies when they're that young. So, yeah, there's a lot of uh, <laughs> there's a lot of issues here. In case anyone was like on the <laughs> fence about like this, these polygamist societies. Well, honestly, it's not that big of a deal if you're constantly bringing in new genetic diversity. For that issue, yeah. They're so isolated that it has just become not good. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Let's get back into the the show a little bit. Yes. And the hunt for the bearded men. Yes. Where are they? (laughs) Who are they? (laughs) Like, I get that, like... Mormons aren't, I don't, like, they're not allowed to grow beards or it's just not, like, customary? No, I don't, I don't think it's, I think it's frowned upon. Okay. Yeah. So, like, when they hear that there were bearded men at the house the night of the murder, they're like, what? <laughs> who, who, <laughs> who would have who a beard? Where are they? Where are they? <laughs> yeah. And, like, I, like, I'm not, like, I get that that's, like, an interesting aspect of the story and, like, a lead for them. Mm-hmm. But 
the beard thing comes up so much. It was just much so funny. That it began to just become really funny. I'm like, this funny. isn't realistic. Like, every time that, like, a new suspect came up, they're like, does he have a beard? Yeah. <laughs> or, like, if someone was suspicious, they're like, beards. Do they have beards? I'm how like, many? This is not how you conduct an investigation. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think this is how they did it. Especially <laughs> considering that you can shave a beard off. Yeah. And, like, then you just don't have one anymore. I know. So, <laughs> yeah, just, like, it, like, the longer it went on, the funnier it became to me. Yeah. Around this time, they find one of the Lafferty brothers, and this is just in the show. This is part of the show's, like, kind of extended uh, narrative. They find Robin, who is, like, kind of hiding out in a motel and runs from the cops, and they they end up bringing him in. Suspiciously has a beard. Yes, has a beard, Ian, red flag immediately. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, they, they bring him in, and, like, when they find him, he's, like, praying, and it's, like, really creepy, so you're like, oh, he totally did it. Yeah. And what's funny was, like, I said how the book began with explaining what brothers committed the murder. Yeah. But it's confusing to keep track of the brothers. <laughs> so I had immediately forgotten who had actually done it. Uh, so at this point, I'm like, oh, did he do it? Like, I had already You're forgotten. All in, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm like back invested in the story. Uh, but yeah, they bring him in for questioning. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, Alan the husband of Brenda didn't realize at first that like his family was actually directly involved probably with this murder in the show, in the show. And it's just beginning to dawn on him. Yeah. Which is terrifying. They also end up finding another brother and the way they find him is um, they end up in the, this mountainous area where there was some kind of shootout that they're investigating. You know, Bill ends up going up there. uh, Jeb's, detective partner and ends up finding this cabin full of all these people with guns, you know? Um, well, it ends up being a <laughs> child and a grown man. Yeah. Uh, but we've heard that like, oh, people come in and out of this cabin all the yeah. time. So they don't know what they're dealing with when they get there. Yeah. It definitely feels very current and um, drawing on a lot of historical parallels of like people in the woods, like kind of, holding up and having guns and trying to like sm- like wait out the military and having these shootouts with the government like yeah. this has happened and this isn't like a mormon thing or like a, a fundamentalist mormon thing like there are so many crazy people with guns in the woods like it's just a thing <laughs> it's <laughs> just teeming the woods are just teeming with crazy bearded men with guns yes the beards are important Ian. <laughs> yes uh but they managed to Someone mysteriously escapes from the cabin, but they capture mm-hmm. one of the other Lafferty brothers, who is Samuel. Yes. Played by one of the Culkins. Yes. Not Macaulay Culkin, not Kieran Culkin. Yeah. Rory Culkin. Rory Culkin, thank you. <laughs> uh, man, the Culkins are, like, great actors. Yeah. <laughs> and Rory Culkin plays a crazy man. Oh, he's so crazy. So well. Yeah, he's the craziest of them. Probably even more than uh, the perpetrators of the crime. <laughs> Probably. I mean, like, or at least he has that, like, image, right? Yeah. Uh, they detain him. He's going on and on about, like, revelations and blood atonements mm-hmm. and just, like, I love that Jeb is just, like, in the police station, like, in the main part, and Sam is, like, in like the witness room yeah. and you can just hear him screaming <laughs> like just insanity <laughs> like the whole time. But they begin to question him and like, you know, and he he's basically alluding to the fact he committed the murder or yeah. flat out admitting it. Mm-hmm. But 
by giving him some false evidence, Jeb says, like, oh, is that when you moved the child's body? And he's like, yeah, 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 I had to wash the child and the mother's blood yeah. or something. And he's like, okay, the child's body wasn't moved. You didn't do this. Yeah. You fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so kind of creating this interesting dynamic that maybe Sam is protecting a different brother um, related to the crime. But let's kind of talk about the family a bit going back in time because, you know, the Lafferty's start out, even though they're very conservative and maybe like a little bit on like the weird side of Mormonism, they seem very normal and they have like a good reputation. And so we start to track kind of the trajectory of these brothers going towards fundamentalism. Fundamentalism. Yes. <laughs> uh, the father and mother actually have to leave for some type of mission trip. Yeah. And so they name Dan, the second oldest son, mm -hmm. the head of the family while they're gone. And this kind of causes some like conflict amid the family, like Ron. Who's the oldest. Who's the oldest seems to be upset about this, but is kind of also removing himself from the family. Mm -hmm. And... Um, Dan. <laughs> Dan does, is not good at his job. <laughs> no, he does not seem to handle it well. He immediately begins to fall into more fringe thinking. Yeah. So he and his brother, Robin, mm -hmm. uh, one of the brothers that was captured, they co-run the family chiropractic business. Mm -hmm. And they take a trip and come back with like new chiropractic procedures, which just involves waving your hands over someone and praying for them. Yeah. And, the, and clearly it's not it's not going over well. The business starts to suffer, and then Dan starts to get pissy about all the taxes and licenses and fees that they have to do for the business to, you know, be certified and legit, you know, labeled as legit from the government. In the book, Dan has, like, a sandwich-making business that he's just running out of, like, his house, and they have no... Uh, there's like no permits. They have like no health and sanitation, nothing. And he gets shut down by the government and he's like super pissy about it. Can I be honest? I completely <laughs> forgot about really? that. Really? Yeah. I do not remember his sandwich making business at all. Yeah. He's like, oh, they shut down my sandwich making business. And I was like, you're probably spitting in the bread. Like <laughs> this is why we have these regulations. You probably have salami just sitting out in the sun. Yeah. Like, come on. Yeah, so they begin to fall into this very right-wing tax... Anti-tax. Anti-tax Anti-government. But they, like, revere the Constitution. Yeah. But also hate the government. But also, like, benefiting from it. Yeah, it's a really interesting dynamic. And I found the this description of some, like, extremists and fundamentalist groups kind of new and something that I hadn't thought of because, you know, I think we're all familiar with like the polygamy aspect of some fundamentalist groups, but the um, anti-tax and anti-government thing. Yeah. And also them being like obsessed with the constitution. Yes. Like they love it. They're so about the constitution. <laughs> they love it so much. They're yeah. literally like God wrote the constitution. Mm -hmm. It's like kind of another Bible to them, but God did not write the amendments to the Constitution. No. So the Bill of Rights, which was kind of passed immediately after the Constitution was written, which is the first 10 amendments, they're okay with those. They're like, okay, that was like that was like a normal time frame. Yes, yeah, second, like second amendment's included in that. Good, good. We're, we're we good like with that. that. First amendment, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, all that is good. But all the other amendments are shit. And we will not follow them. And I love Brenda kind of coming at them for this and being yes. like, um, well, what about the 15th Amendment? Or the 13th Amendment, I'm sorry, that outlawed slavery. Yeah. Well. Oh, we don't, yeah. 
Well, I don't know, but they're like, oh, this amendment that means we have to pay property tax. This amendment that means the government has control of this and that. So yeah, I find this like super bizarre. And I love that like, this makes zero sense, right? Because they're like, I shouldn't have to pay tax. And so it's like, okay, how was the government supposed to run? Yeah, like at all. And they're like, oh, my business shouldn't have to be certified. I can just run a a sandwich shop out of my garage and like feed people whatever. You know what I mean? That doesn't make sense. There has to be some regulation. There has to be health and safety. You know, chiropractic business, a construction business. There Mm -hmm. have to be these laws to keep people safe and to also like kind of control and make sure people are not just committing fraud. Well, and it's so interesting too, because like, you know, I grapple with the question of like, you know, people that are motivated by religious extremism or fundamentalism, right? I'm like, in a hypothetical world where religion, like, let's say doesn't exist, would these people be motivated by something else, right? And I do, like, I look at QAnon, right? Yes. Or people who are like uh, fundamentalists about the constitution and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, it's so similar. Yeah. And like, yeah, religion also gets wrapped up into that because it's like, oh, one nation under God, God Mm -hmm. ordains this. So like, it could still be religious based, but like, I also feel like regardless, people would have this idea and mindset almost about just any kind of belief system that they have. Yeah. And I mean, it's the same too with like these characters as if they didn't exist. (laughs) Yeah. The founding fathers. (laughs) (laughs) You know, these characters. Yeah. Um, Like so much time has passed. And like, even though we do know a lot about them, it's easy to just like turn a blind eye to it and be like, oh, they were like perfect, right? Yeah. Similar to how we look at other religious figures throughout history. Oh, yeah. There's like so many parallels and it just kind of makes so much sense that like revering the Constitution and the founding of the country would be so like inherently tied into religious extremism as well. And like among Christians, too, Mm -hmm. for sure, like not just Mormons. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's just an interesting marrying of two belief systems. Yeah, and I think this this idealism is very centered around a rigid uh, thought structure, right? Yeah. It's very much like, this is how it was then. Nothing should ever change. And we are still running into that now in our own politics, right? We have people who are like, um, yeah, we need to overturn Roe v. Wade because it wasn't in the original Constitution. Yeah. We um, need to make sure we keep every single gun available on the street and in the hands of children because of the Second Amendment. You know, like this idea that, like, the Constitution shouldn't be changed, this idea that, you know, our morals and our beliefs shouldn't change, this idea that our politics shouldn't evolve, this idea that religion should not evolve, Uh, right? Yes. Religion should just be the same. And it's like, that's a tempting, like, pitfall, I think, to fall into, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's that trap of, like, well, if it changes, is it still true? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But it's like a, a thought trap. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because, like, we are meant to evolve and to deny evolution, which is like so essential to just human nature and like for society to society become to function. Yeah. You know, it's like this is how the bad shit happens. <laughs> yeah. It really and is. And we're seeing a lot of the bad <laughs> shit right now. Yeah. Speaking of revering <laughs> religious figures in history. Yeah. Let's talk about old Joseph Smith. Yeah. So Joseph Smith kind of uh, rose to power and prominence during a very interesting time 
in American history, which was known as the Second Awakening. Yeah, and this was like a period of kind of religious surgeons in America. Mm -hmm. Um, People were experiencing like religious fervor. A lot of like really different weird types of religions were popping up at this time. Yeah. There's just this idea of like, uh, the apocalypse is probably imminent. We need to like get right with God. <laughs> it, it's around the corner, right? Yeah, like any day very, now, guys. Very close. <laughs> but, you know, Joseph Smith is kind of raised in this environment. He starts having religious experiences of his own. He has kind of this background where he's interested in occult practices for a while until um, he's visited by an angel. The angel... Moroni? Moroni or Moroni? Moroni, yeah. Yeah. Who tells Joseph about golden plates that are buried somewhere Mm -hmm. that he can he's not supposed to dig them up yet yeah he goes to try to dig them up and then they disappear Mm -hmm. and uh essentially the backstory is that north america was occupied by white people (laughs) a long time ago supposedly a tribe of israel yes and that uh these plates were left by them mm-hmm. and kind of account for the history of the people. Yeah, Joseph Smith eventually gets the plates and then is transcribing them with the help of the angel. And this becomes the Book of Mormon. And this is sort of the history of these people, uh, the tribe of Israel being made up the groups of the Lamanites and the Nephites. And Mormons kind of believe that Native Americans are all descendant from the Lamanites who were cursed with darker skin because they were wicked. So... Not great. Um. (laughs) This this is what happens when you (laughs) say fanfic for like, like, why are there Native Americans here? And it's like, "Ah, I don't, they're the the, the evil people left over. Yeah. And I think this is interesting and a lot of people related to this because it is sort of creating like a new backstory to religion because we already have like Christianity, right? And all the backstory takes place in, you know, Israel, in like these ancient cities that, you know, people are super removed from now that they're living in America. Yeah. And the fact that this religion is like, no, this like awesome, cool stuff happened here in America. And in fact, when like Jesus returns and the second coming happens, the church, all of this is going to happen in America. So it's very like America focused. I think that was appealing to a lot of people. Yeah. Which is kind of fascinating too to think of it today and like how a lot of the, um, fundamentalist FLDS members are like very like into the constitution and things Mm -hmm. like that. And uh, Mormonism is also just unique among religions for being so new. Yeah. And like, we kind of know so much about Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and kind of like the timeline of events and the origin of a lot of things, which for so many other religions, it's so removed from in the past. Right. Yeah. And like, not to sound conspiratorial, but the Catholic Church has had a lot of time to bury anything that they don't <laughs> want people to know about. Going back to the Da Vinci Code here. <laughs> <laughs> well, but like the, the there's evidence of the um, the higher up Mormons doing that with yeah. their own faith, like yeah. buying documents and like trying to suppress any like bad mm-hmm. history or stories of Joseph Smith or anyone else. Like basically, every religion has really like kind of creepy and like suspicious origins that like the the farther away in time you get from it the easier it is to kind of like ah don't don't worry about that too much yeah to smooth it over yeah exactly yeah uh so that's just kind of like what is maybe unique about mormonism Mm -hmm. that gets to be explored like in this story there's more records yes yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. so 
Yeah, so Joseph Smith writes the Book of Mormon. Yeah. Uh, Begins recruiting followers. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, and this is kind of told to us in the show, like, via flashbacks. Yeah. And I think it does a pretty good job of working in these flashbacks into the narrative and discussions for the most part. Early on, it was, like, a little jarring. Yeah. Like, suddenly you're just seeing Joseph Smith and, like... A covered wagon. Yeah, and I'm like, what what's happening? Who is this? I also think some parts of the flashbacks were confusing narratively. For sure. Because we're, we're condensing a lot of very complicated history, right? And it was only when I was reading the book that I was like, oh, it makes sense what they were talking about here. Yes. Yeah, yeah I had that a lot as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, so Jeb, you know, in the show is investigating this case and starts to, like get freaked out and question his own faith because of the things that he's learning about the Lafferty brothers and the LDS church. Yeah. Uh, Around this time they are having, they have twin girls Mm -hmm. and they're getting ready for their baptism. Yeah. Right. And so they're having this like kind of process that they're going through. And Mm -hmm. I think this does a good job of highlighting like the problems within like just mainstream Mormonism too slash all of religion pretty much like, the one part where the uh, bishop is asking the little girls, like, and do you accept that uh, the Church of the Latter-day Saints is the one true religion of the world? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, these eight-year-old <laughs> girls that have had so much experience studying other religions and faiths yeah. and having time to, like, condense their thoughts and feelings about yeah, it. Yeah, they're like, I've thought about it a lot, and it's definitely what I believe in. And, yeah, this just made me think of, like, I mean, the Catholics baptize babies, right? Yeah. Babies do not get to choose. They're just <laughs> no. baptized. Yeah. Uh, more like other religions in Christianity sometimes wait longer to get baptized. Mormons obviously wait longer to baptize them. But I'm still like, they're not choosing it, though. No. You know? Well, I think it just highlights to like the indoctrination of young people into a religion. Like whether it's like one big choice like that or mm-hmm. being baptized or just kind of like incrementally throughout time. You know, being taken to church, being taken to uh, Sunday schools and youth groups and kind of just like always being in a situation where you're told this is the only thing. But it's also made out to seem like you're choosing this. Yeah. It's like, but you're not. Yeah. And like, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about this, but I do want to relate this to my own personal experiences. And, you know, if you want to share too. But like, I grew up in a very, very religious household. My family was what you would call evangelical Christian. Yeah. Um, if you know the evangelical Christian movement, um, they were even weirder and they were non-denominational, you know? So you, everything that you can think about with this type of church, like very strict views of like chastity and purity, and then, you know, this like speaking in tongues movement by the spirit, very much like signs and wonders, like people speaking prophetic prophecies. Yeah. Like... God literally speaking to people and telling them to do this or that or the other thing. Um, And like a lot of it was really toxic. And I grew up just that that was normal. And like a lot of my adult life has been kind of coming to terms with that and trying to find my own ideas of like spiritualism and what I believe about God or religion and where I fall. I mean, it's kind of interesting because Ian and I actually met in like a church group. Yep. This is how the two of us came together. Mm-hmm. This is how the podcast came to be. <laughs> <laughs> but we were both much more religious. Yeah. Very involved in the church at that time. And we both 
dragged each other down. No, I'm, I'm kidding. It was honestly really great because we both kind of had a similar just trajectory. I think like both together, but also independent from each other. Yeah. And it was good not to have that be like a conflict mm-hmm. within our relationship. Yeah, I think we met each other at the right time and we were also what we needed for each other yeah. in that moment, which is why I think it worked out between us. Um. <laughs> yeah. And like I grew up Presbyterian and for the most part, my church was like pretty chill and, you know, it, it was fine. Uh, but like I still remember so many things now that at the time felt weird. And looking back, I'm like, wow, that was like, just so many things, like, I had adults telling me, like, oh, I know the end of days is coming. I can just feel it yeah. because she was, she saw a trans person, like, literally. <laughs> uh, or, like, another older woman telling me that, like, San Diego has so many uh, earthquakes because of the queer community out there. <laughs> like, just, like, things that yeah. you're just, like. I mean, and that was a big part of my leaving of the church was um, the homophobic yeah. stuff. Um, Like, I specifically remember, you know, leaving a church service, like walking out because I was like, I can't listen to this anymore. Like, it was just such specific hatred against anyone who identified, you know, as not straight and just this very political, anti-choice, like Republican centered, Mm -hmm. gun focused, like everything you, you can think of the crazy people that support Trump. Like, that was the evangelical community that I, that I was a part of. And this was even, like, much even before Trump, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I think, too, like, us getting to go to college and kind of get outside of our bubble and, like, yeah. meet people of different backgrounds and different belief systems. And I realize some of that is privilege, right? Oh, like, yeah. Like, going to college and getting those experiences is a privilege that not – like, a lot of people don't get, and I do think that is part of the problem, like, mm-hmm. that financial burden and how a lot of poor people tend to be much more religious and more mm-hmm. extremist and that kind of thing. Um, but, like, getting to just experience, like, other people and ideas is so important. And to tie this kind of back into the book, you know, yeah. Brenda Lafferty, who kind of didn't fit in with the Lafferty family, was, like, the only or one of the only educated women yeah. in the group. And I do think there is a connection to that. The idea that like fundamentalists like. Discourage or, yeah, education. Yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. having other experiences and, you know, getting outside of that bubble. Yeah, I think so too. And like, we haven't talked about Brenda's family that much, but like her family, you know, is presented in the show and the book is kind of like, encouraging her education yes they wanted her to pursue her dreams of you know her career and having this job as a newscaster that she wanted and being like a lot more supportive of education and kind of living a very like kind of fulfilled and wholesome life that isn't just dominated by religion and this is definitely contrasted by the Lafferty family right because we find out later that like the dad was abusive to his kids and to his wife, and that also he wouldn't let them get like get medical care. Yeah, yeah. Which is a, an interesting facet of like some extreme Mormons. Which, if anyone has ever read the book Educated by uh, Tara Westover, mm-hmm. her family was Mormon. Um, they were definitely like extreme. I don't think that they were fundamentalists in any way. Yeah, but they were definitely on the more like survivalist. Yeah, no medicine fringe and her description of like what she grew up 
in was just really sad to read about. Yeah. Well, and it's funny, too, because like them being chiropractors, right? Or the family, the, the, yeah. the patriarch of the family being a chiropractor felt like kind of random almost. Mm-hmm. And then it made sense later when you're like, oh, yeah, because they don't trust they don't go regular to medicine. So they're kind of like into medical alternatives. Yeah. So suddenly them being him being a chiropractor, like kind of made sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to go back to Jeb's character in the story, who mm-hmm. kind of becomes a vehicle for like this religious questioning. Mm-hmm. The more he learns about this case and the Lafferty's and they're kind of like twisted view of Mormonism and religion and everything else, he begins to continue to look at his own family and his own life. Yeah. And to really struggle. At one point, he goes to the bishop of his own church mm-hmm. asking questions. And the bishop was like, you know, because uh, Jeb has a, his mother has dementia. Yeah. And he is struggling with how to handle her. And, you know, the bishop was like, you should give her medication. Like, the Lord gave it to us. It's fine. Yeah. You should do it. And Jeb feels conflicted about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Jeb brings up the case. Yeah. And is like, I feel weird. There's like this history that they're drawing on from some of our, like from Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. And the bishop is like, it's best not to ask those questions. Yeah. Literally. <laughs> And, you know, we see this kind of on a small scale and a larger scale, this kind of like wanting to cover up and divert attention away from like the church. Yeah. Um, a larger bishop figure among the, the big church. Bishop. The big bishop. <laughs> the big boy bishop. Um, at one point shows up to the police station and is like pressuring Jeb mm-hmm. to point the finger away from even fundamentalist Mormons. Yeah. And saying like the church doesn't need this bad press. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever you can do to help us, wink, we'll yeah. be good. And so Jeff is, Jeff, Jeb is experiencing (laughs) this pressure from like the church and from all areas. And once again, this isn't unique to Mormonism. Watch the movie Spotlight about how the Catholic church uh, hid their cycle of abusive priests that they just shuffled around the country, right? Mm -hmm. So this is clearly part of like a larger trend. Or even more recently, the Baptist church and the report that recently came out about abuse within the Baptist church and the cover-ups with that as well. So yeah, you know, if churches would just like be like, hey, yeah, this is our history. And you know what? Maybe that stuff isn't that great, but you know, this is what we're taking from that. And this is what's still important. And like, just not trying to hide that because I do think that the cover-ups make it worse, right? The mm-hmm. cover-ups allow the abuse to continue. The cover-ups allow people to go down these extremist paths and find, feel like they're the right way to go. Yeah. You know? For the greater good. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So yeah, uh, and Jeb's kind of crisis is not fueled by, but kind of um, he keeps returning to Alan yeah. to kind of have these discussions and kind of like sorting out his own feelings. Yeah, but I think we should talk about how Alan is very different in the book. Yeah, uh, the the version in the show, I would say, is like almost completely fictionalized. Yeah, he's like, he seems like a nice guy. He got led astray by his brothers, eventually realized that he didn't want to go along with them and that Brenda... And his daughter, he should put them first over everything. We do have a scene of him, like, kind of slapping Brenda. Yeah. But that's basically as far as it goes. And she's definitely concerned about his involvement with his brothers and this anti-tax group. Um, But he really seems like he loves her. He's questioning his faith, all of this. In the book, it really seems like he was abusing her. 
Yeah, like on a continuous basis. Yeah. And his knowledge of certain events and certain things is also very damning of him as mm-hmm. a person. Like, maybe not, like, legally, but at least morally. Yeah, and, like, he pressures her in the book and the show to not take a job opportunity that comes up to her um, when they're married to have children instead. He um, is very trying to, like, dominate her and control her. Like we said, the abuse is happening. And, like, it's just really sad because, like, uh, from... Brenda's journals, we realize that within just a few months of her marrying Alan, she kind of regrets it. Yeah. And wants to leave him, um, but then gets pregnant. And so is sort of in this position where she wants to stay and make it work, but it's becoming increasingly awful for her. And her sister has also talked about how miserable Brenda was with Alan. Yeah, and she faces pressure from the church Mm -hmm. and from family members to, like, stay with this marriage, even though it's, like, toxic and bad. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, you know, some people might think it's, like, kind of irresponsible of the show to paint Alan in this, like, more positive light. But I think functionally his character within the show, I understand it. And I ultimately, like, really like seeing someone especially to counteract Jeb to see someone who has kind of removed themselves from their faith Mm -hmm. and being able to pose these questions and kind of reflect on his own experiences. Like I remember him saying like, you know, we tell our wives and our women to have as many children as they can and then it will make them more holy, but really it's just a prison Mm -hmm. and, you know, we're just putting them in a box and like restricting them. Yeah. And, you know, he tells this to Jeb and then you begin to see Jeb view his daughters and what he's doing with them, raising Mm -hmm. them religiously and kind of beginning to question that. Yeah. Yeah. And I like seeing too Jeb like telling his wife things and being like you have to listen to me i make the decisions here and so seeing like the faults within jeb you know what i mean that he just expects his wife to obey him in everything and how flawed and awful that is Mm -hmm. you know what i mean to have this system of authority where women are less and you know in fact in the mormon church the regular mormon church not the fundamentalists women are not allowed to serve in the church as yeah. bishops or in any part of the leadership at all, which is a huge flaw um, in the system. And, like, there are other religions that are this exact same way. Yeah. I mean, a lot of Christian uh, denominations mm-hmm. kind of divide over these issues, right? Whether yeah. to accept women in roles of leadership, whether to accept LGBTQ mm-hmm. communities. And, and you kind of see that splintering and frac. Fractioning? Yeah, fracturing. Fracturing, thank you. (laughs) Fractions. (laughs) (laughs) As I'm saying it, I know this isn't right. Well, and it's also worth mentioning the creator and writer of the show, um, Dustin... Uh, Dustin, <clears throat> Lance Black. Lan- Dustin Lance Black um, grew up Mormon. Yes. So grew up in the Mormon church um, and then left the church and is a gay man, you know, is married to a man and has struggled with his religion, you know, his whole life because um, how he was not accepted for being queer, yeah. you know, and how tough that is for people that grow up in that community to just be completely, re- completely rejected. And, you know, we have that in other religions as well. Yeah, and I think Dustin Lance Black was able to bring, from what I've read, a lot of, like, authenticity Mm -hmm. to the show. Yeah, so let's talk about Dan again, the crazy one. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, the one of the crazy ones. One of the crazies, who is getting into this anti-tax movement stuff. He starts to get into more extreme things, discovers um, this book called The Peacemaker, which was 
possibly written by Joseph Smith, actually written by another person, but Joseph Smith was maybe involved in it. Uh, it's disputed, but it talks about, um, what is it? Plural wives, spiritual marriage, polygamy, whatever you want to call it. I think they need to come up with a different term other than <laughs> plural marriage. Yeah. I don't know why, but like, that's the only term they keep using plural marriage. Like we yeah. have to retain plural marriage. And I'm like, it just sounds really funny. It's not good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, this is kind of a, um, like not a large book or document, but mm-hmm. like a, a, a draft almost even. And with a lot of more extreme views that he immediately has a connection to and begins to implement in his own life and his own marriage. Yeah. He's telling his wife, Matilda, I am going to take more wives. She's resistant to this. And then he tells her that, oh, actually, I'm going to take my stepdaughters, your daughters, who are 12 and 14, as my next two wives. Yeah. And in the book slash real life... She didn't like this, but kind of accepted it. Yeah. He ended up changing his mind and not doing it. Yeah. Um, the show changes this to the fact to her helping her daughters escape the house. Yeah. Before anything can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this was something that he like wanted to do. And also they just become more removed from society. Yeah. He insists on like <laughs> them growing their own food, churning their own butter. Yeah. Doing as much as they like possibly can on their own. He also like is like even just more extreme on his tax views. He refuses to pay, um, like taxes on products that he buys at the yes. stores. Yes. Oh my god. And he's, uh, I was like, I'm not paying sales tax, and they're yeah. like, you, but you have to. And he's like, well, I'm not going to. Yeah. And like just being like really ridiculous. Uh, in the show and in real life, at one point he gets pulled over by the police, mm-hmm. causes a huge like scene, and ends yeah. up getting arrested. Ends up in a high speed chase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and gets thrown in prison for mm-hmm. a while. Yeah, he tries to run for sheriff at one point so he can just make the laws whatever he wants. Mm-hmm. Not, I mean, not a bad strategy, but it doesn't work. <laughs> no. Um. Yeah, and at the same time, too, we have Ron having some financial difficulties with his construction business. He ends up involved in Dan's, like, anti-tax group and into this scheme. This causes friction in his marriage with his wife, Diana, And he ends up becoming abusive towards her. Yeah. It gets to the point where she actually divorces him and leaves him, takes the kids and goes. Yeah. And so Ron, who like seemed the most grounded of the brothers, is quickly enveloped in Dan's point of view. Mm -hmm. I love there's a scene with them kind of having this like theological debate and you can just see Dan winning. Yeah. And Ron kind of like succumbing to his way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And this was true too, like in real life in the book and kind of describing that like after this interaction, Ron had like a seismic shift in his personality. Yeah. Like a totally different person is how his wife described what had happened to him. Yeah, and this is, like, really awful for Diana. You know, she's suffering this abuse, and for a while she is trying to, like, make things better with Ron. She doesn't want to leave, and eventually she does. 
Brenda actually helps her to go. Yeah. And also um, the Lowe's family and uh, the Stowe family as well. Yeah, they kind of are able to help because they realize how severe the situation is and they help, you know, financially Mm -hmm. and like arranging things for her to like get her out and like in a safe location. Yeah, this only like pushes Ron further into extremism and Dan is already there. And they they end up in this group with uh, the prophet Anias, Mm -hmm. whose real name is Bob Crossfield. So he really rebranded there. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of thought they could have, like, revealed him in a more interesting way in the show. Yeah. Because he's kind of brought up a lot. He's referred to a lot, like, oh, a man with a bearded braid and, like, involved in, like, this church group and, like, whatever. And then when Ron meets him, he's just like, oh, hey. And he's just, like, in farmer's overalls. Like, I'm not saying they should have made him, like, more sinister than Mm -hmm. he was, but, like, also it felt like a little anticlimactic. Like, I thought they could have leaned into that a bit more. Yeah, they could have made it more dramatic. But Anias and Lafferty's end up beginning this group called the School of Prophets. And their whole goal is to train all these men to be like Joseph Smith, where they could hear the voice of God and receive direct revelations, right? So they're training them to all become their own prophets. And so we see, and we read about um, in the show and the book, Ron (laughs) just... Typing on like a word processor in the 80s uh, out the revelations of God. And apparently he closed his eyes so God could truly speak to him while he typed. Yeah. And he just was hitting one key at a time randomly. Oh, my God. I think he should have just like lobbed things at the keyboard, right? Like if it's really that random and it's really God, like he should have just like (laughs) smacked the keyboard with his palm a few times. Yeah. Uh, It's kind of a little silly and extreme, but there's also in the show at least this real air of like creepiness to it all. Definitely. Especially because they're meeting in a basement. Yes. I I have a question, Adina. What, What is more oppressive in this show? Is it... The patriarchal, like, soul-crushing societal expectations brought about by religious fundamentalism. Or is it the 1980s decor? Wood paneling. Wood paneling. (laughs) (laughs) I just, throughout the show, I just kept being like, how does anyone live in this house? It's so like sad looking and yeah. creepy. Even Jeb's house is like very like draped. Yes. Like lots of drapes. They're all bad. Yeah. All the homes are bad. <laughs> all the decor is bad. Like it just makes you feel so very claustrophobic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I just like <laughs> at, at a point I'm like, what is giving this air of atmosphere throughout this whole show? And I'm like, it's the wood paneling. Yeah. It's it, that's it's it. not good. Never go back. Okay. <laughs> Never go back. <laughs> Uh, uh, let's talk about Joseph Smith again. Yes. Yeah. Let's go back to Joseph Smith. What's what's he up to? So they have this group, right? Mm-hmm. Mormonism is growing. And they start off in New York, near Rochester, actually. I used to drive by Palmyra all the time when we would go visit family. Um, so they were there, and then they got driven out to Ohio. And then they were in Ohio, and they got driven out to Missouri. And yes. then they were in Missouri, and they got driven out to Illinois. <laughs> yes. Uh, just kind of bouncing around all over the place. They really did face a lot of religious persecution wherever they went. Definitely. Um, just a lot of uh, tension with, like, the communities that were already there, mm-hmm. them not being welcomed or wanted. They were also very kind of 
isolated within their own communities. Yeah. Like whenever, wherever they moved to, they kind of were like. They kept to themselves. Kept, yeah. And were self-sustaining, didn't really seem to try to integrate themselves mm-hmm. among the community. And they constantly told the community that they were all going to hell. So I don't think that like made things easier. <laughs> <Did> <laughs> hey, we just moved here. Here's a loaf of bread. You're yeah. going to hell anyway. Okay, bye. <laughs> come knock on the door if you need anything. Don't though. Yeah. Yeah. Don't good. come around. <laughs> uh, there was one key incident though where in Missouri they were kind of surprise attacked by a group of locals mm-hmm. uh and it was known as the known as the Hans Mill massacre uh, a lot of them were shot at while they were in fields mm-hmm. they ran to a blacksmith shop right yeah and kind of tried to hide in there but there were slats or spaces between the slats of the exterior of the house which just allowed the attackers to stick their guns in and just start shooting Mm -hmm. and literally almost shooting fish in a barrel. Yeah, killing, you know, men, women, and children in this incident. And, like, we have a lot of different examples of, you know, different uh, people attacking Mormons and then, you know, occasionally the Mormons fighting back. More often them it being the other way around, though, the Mormons being, you know, like hurt and driven out of different communities. Uh, we also have some tension because Joseph Smith is secretly practicing polygamy at this time. Yeah, uh, Joseph Smith in over the course of his life had like between 30 and 40 wives, I think. Yeah. And a lot of them very young. Mm-hmm. And it was just him telling young women like, hey, God has told me that he wants you to marry me. And if you don't, you're probably damning your soul for all of eternity. So the options on the table. Yeah. Marry and fuck me or damn your soul for all eternity. But this is actually causing a lot of tension as well in their communities because um, in America at the time and now, but even more so at the time, people thought that polygamy was like the most disgusting thing you could ever do. In fact, they thought it was worse than owning slaves. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Then again, a lot of people were pretty cool with owning slaves back then. Yeah, should we be surprised? I don't know. But, you know, eventually Joseph Smith is, like, secretly practicing polygamy. He eventually, like, reveals to Emma and to some of his, like, uh, church leaders that God has given him this revelation regarding um, polygamy. It's referred to as, like, Section 132 or something. Um, Emma is not happy about this. And I thought she was so funny because she was like, (laughs) okay, yeah, you're going to take a bunch of wives. I'm going to marry a bunch of husbands. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, go, Emma. (laughs) I know. And I love the show kind of, like, adding to the absurdity of it because, like, Joseph, I think it was, like, later on came out with, like, more revelations about how, like, yeah. Women aren't allowed more than one husband. And yeah. like, this is just, but like in the scene in the show, it's literally on the spot when she says that. He's like, hold on, I'm getting. Wait, something's coming I'm in. I'm getting a yeah. transmission. <laughs> Emma. God is speaking. Yeah. Emma specifically cannot have more than than one husband. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know. So oh, th- that's that. All right. <laughs> but like, I like the idea too, that like Emma was with him from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And. Like, her depiction in the show seems to be, like, she has a strength from that. Like, she maybe felt like she had equal... Yeah, importance. Importance in this new religion and seeing Joseph kind of, like, taking advantage of his strength and power Mm -hmm. in the situation and, like, her clearly feeling, like, betrayed by this. Yeah. um, Was just kind of an interesting dynamic. Yeah, we eventually get 
to a situation being so extreme in Illinois when they're there that um, the government gets involved. It becomes this huge issue where um, Joseph Smith is actually arrested and is taken into custody. And then a mob storms the prison. The prison and the, you know, officials there just kind of let it happen. And Joseph Smith is killed. The show kind of implies that Brigham Young may have been involved in Joseph Smith's death. And I don't know if there's any validity to that at yeah. all. It wasn't mentioned in the book, but I mean, there there could be evidence of it. I just didn't have time to really look it up. Yeah, it, it was kind of felt a little bit like conjecture or like, I, I don't know. It didn't feel like that based on anything. Yeah. But yeah, I also feel like this was the most confusing part it of the show. It was really confusing. Because like... There's a printing press that's on fire and like the Mormons did it, but also Joseph Smith has run away. Yeah. And then Emma has to send him a letter and he comes back. And then it wasn't clear that he was in jail because it no. just looks like he's in a, in a house. house. Yeah. And reading about this, like that was kind of how it was laid out. Like, yeah, they weren't in the jail cell. They were in the attic mm-hmm. of the house. And so like it. I get it, but like it just felt like visually I, it made no yeah. Sense. I was like, I thought he turned himself in. Why is he in this house? Wait, why are people just showing up to shoot him? Yeah, uh, it was very. They tried to condense, I think, too much. It was probably an issue of like they wanted to be accurate, but yeah, also really there was just too much history to tell. And I mean, we're not going into it at all either. Like the history of the early Mormon Church, and you know them being in so many different states and being driven out of so many different locations. Like you could probably write a book just about. Um, each state that they were in, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's get back to the present day situation and kind of the show specifically, which is where we're introduced to Brady. Yes, who is like an affiliate of the Prophet Onias and was kind of involved in the School of Prophets. And the um, detectives and, and the police end up being led to him through these connections because they're they're looking for the Lafferty brothers. And they meet him and end up searching his house. And he insists he has no, like, affiliation with the murder or anything that happened. But when they look into his house, they find uh, an affidavit. Which he wrote saying, like, he knew that, like, there was probably going to be a murder, but he didn't want a problem or he didn't want to be involved. I don't get how this is supposed to legally, like. I really don't know either. Like, absolve him. Like, you could have still murdered someone and kept that. Like, just because it was postmarked... A certain date and notarized. Yeah, doesn't mean that, like, you still didn't do it. Yeah. You're really just almost incriminating yourself. I mean, it's really shitty, right? Because he basically knew that this these murders would take place. And instead of doing anything about it, literally anything, all he had to do was call in an anonymous tip to the police, you yeah. know? Or, like, slip a note under their door, you know? <laughs> yeah. Instead of doing that, he had this elaborate document notarized to absolve him of any guilt, you know, which is just like, that is not a godly thing to do. I'm just going to come out and say that. (laughs) What I also love too, at least the depiction of him in the show, which he seems like a very family man, like smarmy, family focused family man. Like I literally remember his name because I thought of like the Brady Bunch because he has a bunch of kids (laughs) and he seems like, oh, just a good, like friendly guy. But clearly he was, like, dabbling in this more extreme fundamentalist, Mm -hmm. like, religious view with, like, a bunch of other people. Yeah. Talking about uh, polygamy and these Mm -hmm. other topics and, like, just kind of seeing, like, I don't think he ever would have been extreme in the way that Dan and Ron became. Yeah. But, like, 
he was involved and he has a certain amount of um guilt culpability and, and culpability in like this whole situation absolutely and the entire school of prophets does too because ron at this time reveals some of his revelations that he's received mm-hmm. which is that um it, which is a removal list which is all the people that need to be removed aka killed and this is shown to the whole school of prophets this is why brady does this affidavit you know Prophet Anias is like, hey, that's not cool. Like, we don't want to do that. And this is where Ron and Dan kind of split with the School of Prophets group. But yet no one in the School of Prophets was like, all right, maybe we should call the cops. Like, that's weird. Yeah. They're so anti-government that they're like, oh, it's fine. They don't even, you know, warn Alan or Brenda or any of the other families, the Stows and the Lows that are on this list. And Ron also at this time believes that he is uh, the one, quote unquote, mighty and strong. Yes. Which is something that was like prophesied from one of the previous Mormon presidents. Yeah. This idea that like a new leader slash prophet religious figure would kind of like rise up and like reshape and reform kind of the Mormon church in its pure like form that yeah, Joseph go back Smith, to what, what Joseph Smith and Brigham Young intended. Yeah. And the book gets into like a really interesting like kind of history of like different people through the years trying to like claim this mantle for themselves. Yeah. Like 20 to 30 people have been the one mighty and strong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And just kind of talking about how crazy like all of them were. Yeah. But this is who this is what Ron thinks that he is at this point. And mm-hmm. Dan is there to like support that. Yeah, exactly. Mm hmm. So they the the police know about this list now, and they yeah. know that the Lows uh, are on the list, which is the family that helped Diane move. And yeah. like everyone on this list is basically someone who helped Ron's wife escape him. Yeah. So like definitely inspired by God. <laughs> yeah, God was really mad on Ron's behalf. Yeah. Uh, so the police immediately go to the Lows home and discover that it's been ransacked, mm-hmm. but there's no bodies or evidence of like. Uh, foul play in that regard yeah in the book it's just like oh they weren't home at the time they were on a trip but in the show they actually don't know where they are yeah and they end up having to track down this family they are on like a camping trip they find them safely but then they're also worried about the safety of diana and her kids right because it would make sense that ron would go after them and that he might if he had killed brenda and her baby because they helped diana escape him that he might go and kill his wife and children Yes. Uh, So there's kind of this like escalation of suspense in the show about like tracking these people down. And is there more than like this one murder or two murders? This is also something in the book that the show really, I mean, it it totally changed. And that's the fact that in real life, Alan, Brenda's husband, knew about this list and Mm -hmm. that Brenda was on it. Yeah. And kind of brushed it off. Yeah. Like Dan told him that. Like that you were, he was on the list and Alan was like, I mean, I'm going to defend my family. I won't let that happen. Yeah. Did uh, did not tell Brenda. No, no. Yeah. So like there was clearly the threat of violence implied by this list. You know, it's a blood atonement and the blood atonement thing has roots in the history of Mormonism. Yes. This idea that some sins are so bad that you can only atone for them by shedding your blood or someone else shedding your blood for you. Yeah. So this idea that like, it's a murder, but that you're helping the person get, get into to heaven. heaven. Yeah. Uh, it's just so twisted and fucked up. Really messed up. And a lot of this kind of was coming about at the time because of the extreme persecution that the Mormons were experiencing, right? Like for so long, they were just kind of 
trying to be passive and not fight back, but ended up like really fighting back and becoming aggressive and thinking that they had a right to kill any Gentile, anyone who wasn't Mormon that they wanted, and to use this blood atonement rationale for that. Yeah. So at this time, after the death, the death of Joseph Smith, mm-hmm. uh, Brigham Young became the new president and leader of uh, the Latter-day Saints, mm-hmm. and they needed to seek kind of a new home. So they actually you know, moved west out into Utah. Yeah, I think this is so interesting because they keep trying to leave the United States, right? Because the United States is like their enemy. Yeah. The United States keeps being like, no, you can't own the police, the courts, yeah. uh, all the land. You can't just be a theocracy that's against American religion. Like there's a separation of church and state for a reason. Yeah. So they're like, let's keep going west. Um, so they go as far as Utah. When they move there, actually... It is owned by Mexico. And so they're like, finally, we have our own land. Within a year of them moving to Utah, the United States purchases the <laughs> land that they live on. You thought you could escape, <laughs> couldn't you? Uh, which, yeah, which is just ironic, too, because, like, so much of, like, the Mormonism was, like, revering, like, the Constitution. and Yeah. Like, and, I mean, they could, I, I'm sure they were like, oh, they're not following the Constitution or whatever. But, like, yeah, they're desire to escape the United States is like fascinating. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they are back to being a part of the United States. This continues their like, uh, tension with the government, like Mm -hmm. president after president just continues to be like, we have to deal with this polygamy issue. And uh, by now the polygamy has become like public knowledge. Yes. They've like stamped their seal of approval on it. Yeah. And it's like a part of, like just the Mormon belief system. Yeah. And then we get a really um, like famous incident known as the Mountain Meadows Massacre. And this is when a wagon train of pioneers from Arkansas is making their way through Utah. They're not stopping there. They're, I think they're on their way to California. Yeah. They have like all this really nice cattle and like they're very wealthy. And Brigham Young at this point is really like whipping up a frenzy in the Mormon community because he thinks that there's going to be a war between the Mormons and the U.S. government. Yeah, he's like, they're going to come out here. Mm-hmm. They're going to like, they're going to try to take our us. land. They're t- going to try to take your wives away, all your children, blah, blah, blah. So he's really getting people ready for war. Like he's getting them ready to kill. And then we have this innocent wagon train and rumors start spreading about their role in possible murders against Mormons, et cetera, et cetera, where in reality, it's just these people that happen to be in the wrong place in the wrong time. Yes. The Mormons uh, kind of joined forces with the Paiute uh, tribe Mm -hmm. that is, you know, indigenous to that area. But like the level of agreement and... uh, partnership between them is kind of contested yeah so essentially they make a deal Mm -hmm. to kind of like work together but really the Paiutes did not trust the mormons like they trusted them like five percent more than like (laughs) other white people essentially and then the mormons kind of put them in a position of like hey there's this wagon train that we're gonna attack yeah and whether the Paiutes, it seemed like the Paiutes tried to attack them at the beginning yeah. and some of them were killed or mortally wounded and then they're like, we're fucking off. Yeah, and then they're like, okay, bye. Yeah. Yeah. And so then the Mormons, because they didn't want to be, they were using the Paiutes and they didn't want to be held accountable for this attack mm-hmm. directly. So a lot of them uh, darkened their skin and dressed up 
as the Paiutes Mm -hmm. to continue this assault on the wagon train. Yeah, and it's really sad. They ended up like using trickery to get the people of the wagon train to surrender, give their guns, and they promised them safe passage. And instead, they just shot them in cold blood, like literally like gun to the head, like execution style, killing them. They murdered all... Everyone in this group, about 140 people, and the only ones that they left alive were children younger than five because they believed that they wouldn't be able to remember this incident. And then they took the kids and gave them to Mormon families to raise. Yeah. The government eventually intervened and came and took the kids back. Um, But, like, this is... (laughs) <laughs> this is like as fucked up as you can get. I like just uh, unimaginable. And then when the government took them away, a lot of the Mormon families demanded payment. Yeah. For like, oh, well, we were feeding and raising <laughs> these children. Like we should be given something for that, You're right? Like, you killed their family. Yeah. You <laughs> murdered an entire group of people. Yeah. And then there's this cover up, right? Because once they realized what had happened and the government was investigating, they were like, oh, it was the Paiutes. The Indians mm-hmm. did this and tried to blame the whole thing on them, which is a pretty common thing for white people to do. Uh, not exclusive to the Mormons, but it's <laughs> yeah. so shitty nonetheless, especially because you know, the Paiutes were treated so terribly by the Mormon settlers, displaced, you know, moved around, and then they're having this incident blamed on them as well. There was also another incident where three men involved in the Powell expedition that was um, kind of uh, doing like a reconnaissance exploration of the Grand Canyon and the Colorado River may have also been killed by Mormon Mormons at the time. That one's a little bit more disputed, but kind of yeah. interesting to read about just how awful things were at this time. Yeah. And I mean, like, you can kind of see, like, how this evolved over time. Like, the Mormons were persecuted and pushed around from state to state. Mm-hmm. They got a claim of their own land and, like, were determined to hold on to it and not let anyone push them out of it. That led them to murdering, like, a whole wagon train of people. Yeah. Like, just kind of this cycle of, like, really fucked up violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love this scene, though, with Bill in the show. Yes. Uh, the way the show addresses this bill is Paiute. Mm-hmm. And one of the Mormon bishops, when he's visiting the station, is like, oh, hey. Buddy. We're like brothers, Remember right? when we killed all those people together? Yeah. And <laughs> this leads Bill in a scene later on talking to Jeb mm-hmm. and kind of giving like the version that the Paiutes have passed down. Yeah. From the generation. Real history. Yeah. About like how they were kind of fucked over by the Mormons and blamed for this thing that they like barely had any involvement with. Mm-hmm. I love that he gets this moment because throughout the show he is treated negatively by a lot of Mormons because that he's a Native American. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bill is just such a great character. I, I love know. him so much. I love him and Jeb too. Yeah. Like the two of them like just seem to really care about each other and even though Bill doesn't agree with Jeb's beliefs like he tries to help Jeb like he's like oh isn't it like family home night like why don't you go home and be with your family or like you know why don't you go do this you know I know that this is important to you and like Jeb doesn't get on Bill's case too much about like smoking and drinking and stuff like that they kind of just accept each other and and I really like seeing their relationship in the show yeah my favorite scene between them is Jeb was pressured by the bishops to not mention fundamentalist uh, Mormons in relation to the murder. but in like on a t- press conference? In a press conference, but he ends up doing it because at this point, it's like basically confirmed. Yeah. And when he comes back into the station, Bill comes into his office and he's like, 
listen, uh, I want you to excuse my language, but I'm goddamn proud of you. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I love that part so much. <laughs> it's great. Going back to like kind of the early Mormons around this time, things like escalate to the point where the United States government is actually going to seize all of church property and assets because of the polygamy that they refuse to denounce. And this is when the current president of the Mormon church is like, okay, I talked to God and we're going to like stop polygamy. And like, I mean, they had to, right? It was either they denounce polygamy or every, like everything that they own is going to be taken by the government. So like, this makes sense. It kind of continues secretly for a while and then is again, more adamantly denounced like maybe 20 or 30 years later. But like from this point forward, the um, LDS church, um, the mainstream Mormon church does not endorse or affiliate itself with polygamy at all. Yeah. Uh, It still went on for quite a while, even after it was like officially denounced because a lot of people were like, oh, they just said we can't because they had to say it and like Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. I do think this demonstrates though, like why changes like this are so important. Like, yeah, just saying you denounce polygamy isn't going to make it go away overnight. Yeah. Same with, like, their, you know, acceptance of black people or yes. you know, people of color. And, like, I'm sure that's still, like, yeah, an issue to a degree. Like, I'm sure that also hasn't totally gone away. Mm-hmm. But, like, people will be like, oh, why make this change? It's not going to actually do anything. Yeah. But, like, it, over time, over time, it has to take root. And then mm-hmm. you actually will see the slow change actually happened within communities throughout generations. Yeah. And when the polygamy was disavowed and, you know, outlawed by the LDS church, that's when you see these communities of fundamentalist groups pop up, the Arizona Strip people, Mm -hmm. polygamist groups in Canada and Mexico because it's legal there or the governments just don't prosecute it there at the time. Um, And I just want to like very quickly mention um, something that the book talks about, which is a Mormon fundamentalist group in Mexico specifically. And Krakauer talks about this in depth, kind of like he does um, about the Arizona Strip group, yeah. where there's this whole group of Mormon fundamentalists that have been there for a really long time. And that this one family, the LeBarons, had these different patriarchs who were in charge of this group. And that there were these two brothers who had a falling out and the one brother ended up killing the other. And it was kind of creepy. He was they called him like the Mormon Manson because he didn't do any of the killing himself. Oh, yeah. He got all his followers to do it for him. And in fact, even after he died, he had published like a hit list and his like crazy children kept like following, carrying out the murders. They they called them the Lamb of God murders. I do remember that now, yes. And uh, the reason I want to mention this is because I read another, like, Mormon fundamentalist group (laughs) book called um, The Sound of Gravel, which I'd recommend. It's, like, kind of traumatic, but very good. And it's a memoir, kind of like Educated is, but it's about this woman, Ruth, who was born into the Mexican fundamentalist community. Yeah. And her father was Joel LeBaron, the one who was killed by his brother, Ervil. Wow. And her mother had her and a couple other siblings and then ended up marrying a second man after he died. And she was, you know, his second wife. Yeah. And it was it's all about her and her siblings and her family growing up in this polygamous society 
eventually escaping with her sisters um, to live in the U.S. and kind of her journey out of it. But yeah, I just thought it was so crazy that I remembered reading that book. Again, it's called The Sound of Gravel. But then they mention like the LeBaron family. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's her family. Yeah. <laughs> there is there does seem to be a fascination with Mormons and like Mormon extremists. Right. Because there's also yeah. another miniseries out right now called Murder Among the Mormons, which is a guy that was also mentioned in the book who is actually cellmates with Dan. Mm-hmm. And he was selling like fake artifacts to the church and then like used a pipe bomb. I haven't watched the series. I don't know a lot about it. It seems wild. But like there does seem to be this kind of fascination with people. And like I do think it's a little unfair to a degree because I mean the history of Christians and murder like on a global scale is like endless endless. <laughs> the rivers of blood. Adina. We're just kind of tired of it. You know, we've heard about it too much. Yeah. Mormon stuff is new. I mean, I think about. Think about, like, Scientology, right? Which is also a new, like, religion. Mm -hmm. People are fascinated. Yeah. There's all these, like, memoirs and, like, miniseries and, like, other exposés because it's new and people don't know about it and it's less generally accepted. Same with Mormonism. Like, it still feels, like, a little intriguing. Yeah. And and there is some, like... There is certain levels of secrecy and privacy to Mormons, right? Like, there was some backlash... I mean, there's, I think, a lot of backlash to the show from the Mormon community, but in part because they depicted uh, certain ceremonies that are meant to be private and kind of, like, special to the Mormon community. Yeah. And they were upset with, like... the wedding ceremony. Like, the wedding ceremony, and they were upset with, like, depicting that, right? Yeah. When they wear the chef hats. (laughs) The outfits. But, like, yeah. It's just funny outfits. Yeah, I know. From an outsider's perspective, it seems, like, silly or, like, what's this about? Like, I want to know more. Yeah. Uh, And so I do think that's partly what a lot of America's fascination, you know, with Mormonism revolves around. Definitely. Uh, going back to the case, uh, they eventually discover the two men who were with Ron and Dan when the murders took place, Chip and Ricky. <laughs> Chip and Ricky sounds like a fun road trip comedy, except it takes a hor- horrific detour into murder and the occult. Yeah, they seem like just your general drifter, like, uh, druggies, but they end up hooking up with Dan and Ron and then doing nothing when they're like, yeah, we're going to kill this woman and her baby. And they're like, yeah, whatever. We'll drive with you. Like, I don't care. Yeah. And then they do nothing when the murders take place. But this is where we hear kind of like a firsthand account of what happened because they were there in the car. And then Ron and Dan told them exactly what happened in the car afterward. So, yeah, it's not not good. Ian. yeah, they, I think, had a realization that, like, this is maybe more serious than we thought it would be, or maybe we're just now realizing The vibes it. are wrong. Yeah, the vibes are <laughs> off. So while they were sleeping at a hotel or motel together, uh, Chip and Ricky steal the car mm-hmm. and get the fuck out. Yeah, they steal the car and do not go to the cops. Nope. They just go home. And the- then, of course, the cops track down the car and then they yeah. get to them. And, you know, I mean, props to the cops. I mean, I- I'm sure that they wish that they could have. I would have liked to see these two go down as well, but they knew that they wanted to get Ron and Dan. Yeah. So they were basically like, hey, you cooperate with us. You testify against them. 
and will let you off or, you know, reduce your punishment. And they lead them, you know, they're like they they were going to Reno. And then later when Dan and Ron are, you know, try, like tried for these crimes, um, they're, they are witness and they are responsible for bringing them to justice. So I wish that they could have been punished in some way, though, or like something bad happened to them. Yeah, <laughs> what they did was pretty unimaginably shitty. Yeah. On their way to Reno, Jeb's crisis of faith is reaching its apex. Yeah. Uh, He was given a book by Alan Mm -hmm. that I don't know if this is like supposed to be a known book. It's kind of almost implied that like. Oh, uh, it's the red one. Yeah, the red one that like Jeb would know what it is. Mm -hmm. And like when his wife sees it, it seems like she knows what it is, but I don't know what it is. I think it's just a book on Mormonism. Like a like Like a a secular version. Yeah, like an objective history of the Mormon faith. And it's it's kind of really funny because like Jeb like goes out into his car (laughs) in his garage to like read it secretly secretly. And I'm like, you look more suspicious doing this. But it is really sad because he kind of confesses to his wife when she finds him reading this that he is struggling with his faith and he doesn't know what he's going to do. And she says to him, well, that's too bad. I can't struggle with you. Yeah. So either figure it out or I'm going to leave you. She threatens to leave him. Yeah. And to take the the kids and to marry someone else. She's literally like, I thought I could raise these kids with you, but I, I might have to do it with someone else. And I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. She's like, I married a man of faith. Yeah. And that's I will be I will be married to a man of faith no matter what. Yeah. Uh, so like a lot is on the line for Jeb, but also he seems to be unable to like just ignore these feelings. Like at one point yeah. he t- tells Alan about a dark voice mm-hmm. in his head. And Alan says, like, it's not bad. It's just. What happens when the things you've been told all your life are true are suddenly challenged mm-hmm. and you're left to listen to, to your doubt. to listen to your own voice mm-hmm. and to suddenly like tr- try to trust yourself instead of like the invisible voice of God or the, the quiet voice of God. As yeah. They say. Yeah. Uh, they go to Reno and end up capturing Dan and Ron. In the show, they get there just in time because Ron is trying to strangle Dan. <laughs> He's like, there can only be one mighty it, and it, strong and it, it me. It's a Highlander situation. <laughs> there can only be one. Yeah. And luckily, well, not luckily. I don't, <laughs> I I don't, don't care. care. Dan, Dan isn't dead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Ron wasn't able to fully kill him before they are captured. And this is actually kind of based on a true event which it wasn't when they were about to be captured but later when they were in uh jail cells together like adjoining jail cells Mm -hmm. uh ron was like i think god wants me to kill you i've had a revelation and dan's like okay well let's like pray about it you know and then dan's like okay well it seems like that's right so um yeah you should kill me how should we do this (laughs) it's like so dark oh and my extreme God. that it's almost like absurdistly funny. Yeah. The fact that Dan's like, yeah, no, I mean, if God's telling you to kill me. Okay, let's like, do yeah, it. Yeah, let's do this. Yeah, he's so he's so messed up. Yeah. But uh, like, he's like, okay, well, it's probably better if I back up against the, the bars of the cage and then you can kind of strangle me that way. Yeah, you can pull on this towel that's around my neck and they try it and yeah. like... Ron kind of gives up partway through and Dan is still alive. And then later the next day, Ron's like, hey, let's uh, try again. Let's try again. God really wants me to kill you. And Dan is like, I think I'm done with this. Actually, I think I'm good. (laughs) I feel like God's telling me that I'm good right now. Yeah, I think God's telling me not to let you kill me. 
So this, even though this, like, they put it in a very extreme moment of the show, this kind of, like, climax. Uh, it's true to what Yeah, it's not totally happened. fabricated. Yeah, and this is where the show kind of ends, and we'll come back a little bit um, to tie it off. But I do want to kind of mention how much further the book takes this. We are kind of shown what happened in the two of them being tried. You know, they both went on trial. Uh, Ron actually tried to kill himself. Yeah. So his trial was delayed. And Dan is convicted. He's found guilty, but um, the death penalty is not uh, given to Dan. So he's given like multiple life sentences. So he's not going to get out, basically. Yeah. And then when Ron is finally tried, um, he's given the death penalty. But... It ends up being like when you get the death penalty, there's this huge and really lengthy appeals process that happens with that. Yeah. And it gets dragged on for years and years. Mm -hmm. And they ended up throwing out Ron's case. Yeah. On the on the principle that like, oh, you're you said he wasn't crazy. But how could a crazy person believe any of this? Yeah. All of this like religious dogma. Uh, Yeah. And it kind of created this like interesting complicated precedent of like well a person can be religious without being crazy right or does anyone who believes in any religion automatically are they qualified as being crazy yeah are you insane and are people insane for believing in god yeah um it's interesting because krakauer talks about like the retrial that they have where they do try to prove you know ron is guilty again and the arguments they make about trying to give examples of perfectly sane people who believe really ridiculous things, like some people who believe that the earth is 6,000 years old but are totally sane. Yeah. You know, people who take the body and blood of Christ as communion and they believe that, you know? All of this evidence and kind of just showing that Ron was sane. He believed that he was hearing God, but really he was doing it for his own reasons. And I mean, I think that's pretty clear considering that all the people he wanted to kill, like we said, helped his wife leave him. And they talk about, he talks about in the book how Ron is most likely uh, has a narcissist personality disorder. Yeah. And that like, it was narcissism, but like not anything extreme, like being schizophrenic or yeah. anything like that. And they talked about, interestingly enough, like he had a certain sense of humor. Like he was able to make jokes and laugh at other people's jokes. And the psychologist was saying, like, to have that level of perception and understanding of like your situation and another person's like reflecting their idea mm-hmm. of what's going on. Like humor is like a very complex yeah emotional thing to share with someone you have to be able to relate with somebody else yeah and that people who are like psychotic or schizophrenic like are often like so isolated and self-closed that they don't have Mm -hmm. humor and kind of using that as an example of like his sanity i thought was like very interesting yeah and so he is eventually convicted again you know found guilty given the death penalty again But as of the writing of the book, he had not yet been executed. And only in, I think in 2019, he died of natural causes, still waiting to be executed. And in fact, Brenda's sister has, you know, come out and kind of advocated against the death penalty Mm -hmm. because she's like, actually, it's worse for the families. Yeah. When someone has the death penalty. Because she talked about how they don't really hear anything about Dan, right? He's just in prison, being crazy, being interviewed by John Krakauer, like doing his thing, right? Yeah, yeah. But like every time there was a new trial or new appeal or new, you know, process with this death penalty for Ron, her family was dragged all 
like through all of this pain and torment again. Yeah. And then the news picks it up. And it's just like, it's this endless suffering for the families. And I thought this was so like, I never thought of this before, but it is so true that it's almost worse for the families because the death penalty doesn't just, it's not like, all right, then we killed him. And then now he's dead. It's like this whole thing that is just so painful for everybody involved. And we should just get rid of it. Yeah, if you want to hear more of our thoughts on the death penalty, <laughs> we, we did an episode on um, uh, Just Mercy. Just Mercy, thank you, that mm-hmm. uh, deals with like a lawyer representing people uh, on death row. Like, yeah, I've always been morally against it, and I knew that it was like a very inefficient or just like prolonged system that like was also bad. But like, yeah, that that perspective of families of the victims. Mm-hmm prolonging their suffering and halting them from like being able to move on. Like that's such a good point. Let's follow up and end the show with Jeb kind of deciding how he wants to move forward with his life. Now that the case is over, we see him returning home to his family. Um, But before that, we get this like moment between him and Bill. Yeah. Where Bill is kind of telling him about like, he's singing this like song passed down from, like, his Paiute ancestors. Mm-hmm. He sings a Catholic song, too. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Jeb is like, do you believe any of that? And Bill's like, no, but, you know, everyone needs a home. And, like, it reminds me of, like, my ancestors and my people. Mm-hmm. And, like, it, it brings me comfort. And he says, like, there's nothing wrong with singing a song, even though you don't believe it. Mm-hmm. And this seems to embody where Jeb moves forward from here. He goes home he uh, sees his family and they all like have prayer together. Yeah. And he seems to like be going through the motions at least without some kind of like internal conflict. Right. Yeah. And there's a scene later too, where he takes his mom out into nature. And this reflects something Bill also said to him about like, why does the beauty of nature have to be like divine or like God did this or to appreciate it? Yeah. Like, can't it just be beautiful and can't you just appreciate it for what it is you know, on its own. Mm -hmm. And he says something similar to his mom when they're out visiting. And I am conflicted about this ending. Yeah. Because on one hand, I think him being like more questioning of his faith, I think kind of for anyone is a good thing to not just be blindly following it. Right. Definitely. However, like he clearly was having conflict about, the life his daughters were beginning to like be yeah. brought into like how, they how are they up? being raised what are they being indoctrinated with mm-hmm. like these ideas of the church and like is he gonna just keep letting that happen like is yeah. he not going to try to do things ad- differently yeah advocate for his daughters based on like what he now believes to be the right thing yeah is he going to just like shut down every every question that he had yeah because it wasn't just like yeah i think going through like religious services and ceremony and like those kinds of things that bring you comfort that aren't like oppressing people or whatever. Like (laughs) those are fine and good. Yeah. But like they, it seemed to be like not bringing him comfort and joy. He seemed to be like racked with guilt Mm -hmm. and like self-reflection and like not enjoying those things anymore and questioning whether they were harmful. Yeah. And I don't think this ending really adequately addresses that. I am okay with it. I think just because it is kind of acknowledging the reality of how hard it is to leave uh, faith sometimes, especially when that is your whole life, right? You grow up with that. Your whole family is that. And not just your family, especially with Mormons in Utah, like that's 
in some towns in Utah, everyone is Mormon, right? Mm -hmm. What are you going to do? Move away? You know what I mean? And faced with potentially the loss of his wife and daughters. I mean, that was threatened to him. Yeah. He kind of was almost forced to stay in the church. But that's like really sad to me. It is sad. And I don't think, I think the show was kind of trying to spin it in like a, oh, there's good and bad to this. Mm -hmm. Like it's not all, but like. It feels darker than that to me. Yeah, I, I feel like it's just him trying to find a balance. And maybe the show didn't could have done a better job portraying that balance. But I think it's realistic. I Yeah, I don't think, like, there wasn't time and it wasn't his story to, like, try to, like, yeah. challenge his family in the church. I think it could have just ended more ambiguously mm-hmm. in terms of, like, where he went forward from here. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, maybe ending with him being, like, telling Bill, like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And, like, mm-hmm. I don't know. It ends with his wife being, like, do you want to do prayer? And then, like, maybe just, like, cutting to black there. You yeah. Know? Like, just kind of leaving it more up in the air as to, like, where Jeb goes forward. Because mm-hmm. there are, like, a lot of big questions and there's more grappling to do, I'm sure, for that character. And, like. Yeah. I, I think trying to wrap it up in any way at the end is maybe doing a little disservice to all of the questions that it brought up. Yeah. So we have to decide now which one is better. Do you want to go first? I'm like, mm, I feel like maybe the book. Yeah. But I think the show did a really good job of creating like a, a story here. Yeah, I mean, it took some liberties for sure with, like, the real events in terms of, like, oh, these brothers were thought to have done it, and then Mm -hmm. this one, and then, like, oh, like, kind of creating, like, this detective narrative mystery with, like, adding some suspense and things like that. And, like, maybe purists or people are like, you shouldn't fuck with the true story, the details of it. Like, I get that. But for me personally, I'm fine with that because it's capturing a lot of the ideas and what John Krakauer was kind of getting at in his story, right? Yeah. The idea that, like, yeah, fundamentalists are kind of their own thing from the mainstream Mormon religion. However, how is the mainstream Mormon religion culpable in some of the beliefs and ideas that are tied to this, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Something we didn't talk about at all was the uh, abduction of Elizabeth Smart. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this, like, she came from a Mormon family and was abducted by a fundamentalist Mormon. Yeah. And people have argued that, like, because of her Mormon upbringing, she was much more susceptible. To the brainwashing. To the brainwashing. Yeah. Because a man is like, hey, God is talking to me. And she's like, well, I grew up being yeah. told that you can have divine revelation and stuff. And, mm-hmm. like, how... At fault is the church and, like, this doctrination of children for what happened to her, you know? I'm not saying they are, but I'm saying, like, it brings up good questions. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm going to say the book. Yeah. I do like how Krakauer kind of goes into a lot of different aspects of Mormon history and showing where the fundamentalists get a lot of their ideas. Yeah. Also kind of showing um, these different fundamentalist sects that were sometimes affiliated with Ron and Dan, but also just existing on their own and, and kind of that that history there too. But it is a tough choice. I actually think I might go with the show. Yeah. Only because I, I liked the book and a lot of the information. However, I felt like it was maybe a little too sprawling. Yeah. Like on one hand, it tried to anchor everything around the murder and the questions that like the this fundamentalist perspective and Ron and Dan bring to religion as a whole. Yeah. 
but it was also like covering like the the entire history of the Mormon religion and yeah. also like these different sects and like there were points because I listened to this on audiobook where I was like wait who are we talking about right now like what yeah how does this does this character tie into the murder or doesn't I I, I forget mm-hmm. like it was maybe a little too sprawling at points I think for my taste okay well I think we can disagree because I, I liked both yeah so, oh yeah. and I I did too for sure <laughs> I think it balances out our feelings yeah to, for me to say show when you're saying book. okay I say book and Ian says the show let's do a quick lightning round yes yeah, so let's do lightning so first for lightning round, I did want to read um, two quotes from the book. And this is actually both from the last part of the book, which is the author's remarks. There's this really great quote by Anne Dillard from uh, For the Time Being. And this is kind of starting out this chapter. This is Anne Dillard saying, There were no formerly heroic times, and there was no formerly pure generation. There was no one here but us chickens. And so it has always been, a people busy and powerful, knowledgeable, ambivalent, important, fearful, and self-aware, a people who scheme, promote, deceive, and conquer, who pray for their loved ones, and long to flee misery and skip death. It is a weakening and discoloring idea that rustic people know God, knew God personally once upon a time, or even knew selflessness or courage or literature, but that it is too late for us. In fact, the absolute is available to everyone in every age. There never was a more holy age than ours, and never a less. I love that quote, too. I just thought that it's such a great idea of how we often idealize the past and the people from the past to our detriment, right? And all we have is now. And I think humans have always essentially been the same throughout history. And then I also want to read a final quote by John Krakauer um, in closing this book where he's talking about his own um, skepticism of religion and how he was raised. And he kind of closes it, this book, by saying... And if I remain in the dark about our purpose here and the meaning of eternity, I have nevertheless arrived at an understanding of a few more modest truths. Most of us fear death. Most of us yearn to comprehend how we got here and why, which is to say, most of us ache to know the love of our creator. And we will no doubt feel that ache, most of us, for as long as we happen to be alive. I think that's really poignant and beautiful you know yeah i love both of these quotes kind of closing this book and this story about religion and its role in our lives and like how people take it too far and also like how we can try to live our lives you know what i mean with or without religion well yeah and and uniting kind of you know even people who don't have a religion or don't believe in god there is still that ache and yearning to like have a purpose and to know our purpose and to feel love right you know uh, yeah, I think that's really beautifully summarized mm-hmm. there. Uh, for lightning round for me, there's we have to address the subplot in the show near the end, which is Diane ends up, you know, they find her. She's safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this is all fictionalized. I don't think it's based on anything. No. But she leaves the safety of where she was in Florida and heads back to Utah to find uh, Dan's wife. Mm-hmm. Matilda. Matilda. Uh, Because they know she's in danger as well. Yeah. And she ends up finding Matilda and helping her escape the Lafferty house where the mother is very creepy and angry. (laughs) And they're at a gas station when Sam, the one brother, Mm -hmm. the craziest, played by Rory Culkin, (laughs) discovers them. And he tries to forcibly grab and restrain Matilda to bring her back to the house. And Diane, with new 
empowerment and anger and rage and I love it she just starts like going off on Sam she tells him like you're a small man you've always been a small man it's no one else's fault but your own she says you're not special you're a small weak child of a man (laughs) I love it (laughs) and she encourages Matilda to break free from him and she does Mm -hmm. and I like really love this moment I do too Especially just the part where she tells just Sam owns him. how <laughs> pathetic he is. <laughs> it's great. That's the end of our lightning round and the end of this episode. Thank you so much for listening. This was such an interesting one to talk about. And wow, I mean. Yes, it was a very <laughs> dense episode, as I'm sure the time stamp for this one will say. But, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm proud of us for keeping it moving and getting yeah. to talk about the things we wanted to talk about. And hopefully this was interesting and thought provoking for you as well. We'd be very interested to hear your thoughts on this. If you watch the show, read the book or have any other experiences related to this that you'd like to share about religion. So you can reach us at cover to credits pod at gmail.com or you can reach out to us on Twitter and Instagram. Please also consider becoming a patron of the show. We don't do ads on the show to keep things moving at a, mm-hmm. at a, uh, a brisk two hours. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, pace. Uh, so uh, Patreon is the only way we make any income from this show and mm-hmm. that you get bonus episodes, you get priority uh, recommendations and monthly schedules and, you know, just a, a discord community as well. So mm-hmm. please consider becoming a patron at any level. You know, find us on Facebook, find us on Twitter, Instagram. That's all at CoverToCredits.com. And we'll see you next time. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.